the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me from the band Buck Cherry, it is singer Josh Todd. We talk about the Gen X summer tour, new music, and a lot more. Right after that, from Anthrax, it is drummer Charlie Benente. I just saw them recently out in Montreal. It was absolutely spectacular. Their new DVD is called Kings Among Scotland. We talk about that and, of course, a whole lot more. And then we finish this episode with Des Fafara of the band Devil Driver. They have a new, I guess, country metal album, Outlaws Till the End. Interesting concept. I'll let Des explain it later on. But first and foremost, joining me once again, it is a co-host from The Great Firehouse, Bill Leverty. Good day, sir. Hey, Mitch. Thanks for having me on again, bro. Yeah, so lots of great stuff in in the world of Firehouse and and Bill and stuff. You've got, of course, some new music available at Leverty.com, which we recommend that folks go check out. But you will be part of the New England Rock Fest in Chicopee, Massachusetts on August 17th and 18th. I uh, recommend you check out NewEnglandRockFest.com. And uh, as an added bonus, I will be hosting the event. So you and I will share a stage for the whole five seconds. <laughs> Man, that's going to that's gonna be cool, dude. I can't wait. And uh, New England Rock Fest uh, hosted by Kivel Records. And Kivel Records has been around for 20 years now. And they've put out a lot of great artists and uh lots of albums over the years and it's it's really going to be a great party I've, I've been up there and done a show with the head of kivel records a guy named john kivel um firehouse has and uh, he, he really does throw a great party so it's going to be a lot of fun yeah he really does and in fact uh not only is he hosting the festival but he's got bands like tango down and so on and so forth steel city romeo riot that are on kivel records uh, just fun sort of melodic hard rock that's worth checking out. But uh, speaking of checking out stuff, let's get over to Buck Cherry and this Gen X summer tour. Now, it includes P.O.D., Lit, and Alien Ant Farm. And what I find interesting is that it's called the Gen X tour. But if you look at the bands and when they came out, Lit was in 88, Buck Cherry 95, P.O.D. 92, Alien Ant Farm 96. And then you've got Firehouse in 89. And yet... You are not considered a Gen X band, even though you came sort of at the same time. Um, why do you think that you and Firehouse have been excluded from the Gen X pile and sort of lumped into the hair metal pile? I don't consider you hair metal at all, at all, at all, at all. So, yeah, I, I you know, I think I, I, if I were to guess, I would say that it's probably the bands that came along uh, and got on MTV at the time that that we did were, uh, you know, in with, uh, you know, the white snakes and the Bon Jovi's and, and Def Leppard's. And, um, so we were coming out of that genre and, um, then right at about that, the end of that wave, which is where we, we kind of were one of the last bands to fit into that genre and get played. Uh, right after that Nirvana hit and, um, all the bands that, that were able to be able to fit into that genre, uh, came along just just after us, so it's um, you know, and 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 none of those bands on that that um, uh, tour you're talking about really sound tour. like Nirvana. Yeah, they don't really sound like Nirvana. No, but I think the Nirvana movement spawned 
just a change in the music and uh which the, the music the music must change and and every you know few years things change in the music and and that's what's happened and and I think the truth is is that a lot of those bands are, have super talent and um and they've just figured out ways to kind of make their music sound different whether it's tuning down or whether it's uh, the production of your music might have some other elements in it, electronic, or just stripping things way down. A lot, a lot of them will do that. So, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. And, but you know, you you look at a band like Buck Cherry. They they have a very classic rock sound. They're a great band, by the way. They they really are an exception. I mean, they're they're kind of a little bit a little bit ACDC, yeah. you know, but but uh, straight ahead slamming hard rock band and. Um, yeah, yeah and so I, you know, they they did they did it right. They just they just rock and roll. You know, they, they really do. And and you look at a band like Lit, they have some very melodic rock songs. So, and yet nobody would consider them a hair metal band, but but they have a lot mm-hmm. of melody in what they do. And in fact, their their new album that that's coming out in July is uh, stealing from the Nashville scene. Uh, I know that uh, Jeremy, who was in the band that I interviewed last week, stopped short of calling it a country album, but he calls it a Nashville-influenced album. So anyway, let's get over to the interview with Josh Todd of Buck Cherry, one of my favorite bands. I've always loved what they do. Uh, So here is the one, the only, singer Josh Todd. We are speaking with Buck Cherry singer Josh Todd. The uh, new tour coming up is Gen X Summer with uh, P.O.D. Lit and Alien Ant Farm. Josh, always, always a pleasure. I'm, I'm actually personally a Buck Cherry fan, so it's always great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Yeah, great talking to you as well. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a great tour. We're, we're really excited about this package. Uh, we've all known each other for a while, all these bands, and you know, there's just so many uh, hits divided up between these guys that it's going to be such a fun bang for your buck. It really will be. Now, after this tour is done, is Buck Cherry going to go out on their own and do sort of a, a fall run of sort of headlining dates, or is this sort of the gonna, only? Yeah, okay. yeah, Buck Cherry. We're gonna do, we're gonna do this uh, Gen X summer tour, and then we're gonna just do pockets of shows here and there like we're going to europe we're going to go to the to the uk um i think we're going to do well i don't don't know if i can mention some of the other shows but uh, we're going to be doing um just fly dates here and there because we're gearing up to record a record in october and we're going to finish recording the record in october and then the the new record is going to drop after the first year so um we're going to have to have time to record the record so we can't be on the road full time. So, uh, but we're going to be constantly playing every month, but it won't be full time till after the first year, then it's going to go crazy. All right. So, so 2019 is going to be the big year. So let's talk about that. Rock and roll, of course, came out in August of 2015. You are going to get in the studio and do this new one. Uh, you know, now that you're sort of, what is it? One, two, three, seven eight albums into the career is there a buck cherry sound that you're going to try to capture on the next album or do you have sort of this freedom to do whatever you want how how do you see it coming together you know we wrote a lot of songs we've been writing for months so um it's just got to be great like you know the songs have got to be great and i don't want to i don't i'm not interested in making like 13 song records or 12 song records anymore so it just got to be like a great 10, 11 song record. And, and right now we got, you know, to make a Buck Cherry record, you got to be a pretty good song. So, um, 
uh, we're just kind of sorting that out right now, but we got like, we have like 10 songs right now that are really great and a lot of dynamics and mid tempo, fast tempo, slow songs. It's just, it's going to be a really well-rounded, uh, Buff Cherry record. So that being said, I don't know if we want to do a traditional, uh, sounding Buck Cherry record. We want it to sound, you know, we want it to have the integrity of Buck Cherry, but kind of, you know, have a little bit more of a modern sound. So we're, we're working on that right now, as far as producers are concerned. Oh, that's great. And, and you know, I, I like the concept of, of scaling it back to 10 songs or 11 songs, you know, being, being from, from the 80s scene myself, when CDs came out, everybody went from these half hour records, you know, your cheap tricks and your Aerosmith, all of a sudden to 17, 18 songs, 73 minutes. And, it was just too much to listen to. So, so, so. No, nobody's listening to that. Yeah. No one is listening to that. Like nobody's even buying records. They're buying singles, you know? And so, um, you just, you got to be conscious of all that, you know, and, and do the right thing. Yeah. Um, I do agree with that. Now, of course you did have, uh, Josh Todd and the conflict, the year of the tiger album. Um, talk to me a little bit about that. Was, was that sort of what rose out of, buck cherry's personnel changes and you just went out and did a statement or is this another band that you really want to foster and 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 grow into to its own sort of i don't want to say brand but its own thing or how talk right. to me about what was it is it more to come or I hope you enjoy what you got no i wanted to start another brand and it it's very difficult actually uh because there's so many uh, there's so many things that we got to have in order to go out there and, and build a brand. It's not like we're, you know, 18 year old dudes that can just jump in a van. So that that's the real problem that we were experiencing with the conflict. You know, we only got to tour seven weeks on that record, you know, because uh, we got to have more money in it to go do it and to provide for our families and stuff. So we're going to make another record of course but you know it's it's a slow build with the conflict because it's a new brand and it's not you know the idea was not to have it co-mingle with buck cherry in any way you know so um that's why i did it it's a f- amazing record i love the conflict record and we're gonna make another one at some point you know but right now it's just going along the same lines of uh, what we said you know? Yeah. And I agree. It was an amazing record. And, and I do also want to go back in, into the history too, uh, with Josh Todd, you made me, which came out in 2003. Uh, and I've told you this before, it includes one of my favorite songs you've ever recorded circles. Is that something that's <laughs> cool? Don't you love that song though? I mean, that, that's such a fantastic song from, from top to bottom. Um, is there more, Todd solo or is that was that a one-time statement as well because I really think that that album maybe didn't get the attention it deserved because there's a lot of great stuff on there there's so many albums that I've done that have not gotten attention that it deserves there's so many Buck Cherry records if you look at True. it there's seven full length seven full length Buck Cherry records and really only one of them got promoted the right way and that was 15 Correct. so um, you know if I think about that too hard, it's just so heartbreaking, but I can't, I can't do that. All I can do is just kind of learn from, you know, a, what is, what happened during those cycles and just get better. And that's what we're doing right now, you know? So, um, I feel really good about the timing and everything in this Buck Cherry record. I feel like everybody wants it and that's really great. And 
we got great songs and we got an amazing band. It's the best lineup ever in the history of Buck Cherry. And we are having fun together. And when that is going on, it's unstoppable. Oh, I agree. And uh, I'm going to come down and see you at Exhibition Hall in Watertown, New York on July 30th. Uh, basically, how much do I have to pay you to play Circles Live? Is is, is that is it negotiable? <laughs> I don't know if I'll be playing that one, but uh, <laughs> we got so many. But we have so many Buck Cherry songs that we don't ever play. So we got a we got so many songs. Yeah, you really do. So so let's quickly talk about the lineup change. And I know that you probably mentioned it a million times, but what's it like now to have a new set of guys in it? Does it bring sort of does it refresh the songs when you play them live? How does it feel to write with new partners? Uh, you know, in French, we say a renouveau. Is it, is it a renewal or is it like, well, I can't, we... I can't even, I can't even tell you. It's like, it's really hard to explain, but you know, when, when you're in a band and you're out there on the road, you're, you're in really uh, tight, close quarters. And so, you know, having, being in a situation where guys don't necessarily respect and care for each other, it's, it becomes, uh, just not fun, you know? And, the last three years of Buck Cherry prior to that, I mean, it's been, it's been going on. It's a, like a year and a half since the lineup changed. So it's, it's been a while now, but like the three years before the lineup change, uh, it was just a kind of a slow, nasty burn. And, um, you could just feel that things were changing and, and it wasn't fun, you know? So now it's just, uh, it's a lot of fun and we're all like, we're all synced and the musicianship is really great. That's like the, that's the one thing that's really awesome. It's like when, I don't know if you've seen the new lineup, but it's like, it's, I like to say like now, like, oh, okay, we're an arena rock band now. It's, it's a, it's, this is the band I always wanted it to be, you know? So um, I'm really happy. The uh, the show that I just mentioned in Watertown will be my first time seeing the lo- the new lineup because the last time I saw Buck Cherry, I interviewed you and Keith at the exact same time. It was a double interview, so no, it's been it's been way too long for me to to see the band. Um, I want to ask you this story here that I, I was I had uh, former Rat drummer Bobby Blotzer on the phone the other day, and I was telling him that I was yep. about, to, about to interview you, and he said, mm-hmm. oh. Josh is fantastic. He used to hang out with us all the time. He was on set for the Shame, Shame, Shame video and the Loving Use a Dirty Job video. And, and that guy's rock and roll, and he's, it's been in his system since he was a kid. Um, just sort of talk to me about, about those days, because he remembers you being sort of a 13, 14-year-old guy hanging around the scene, and this is sort of been your life ambition forever and always. It's talk to me about sort of where you caught the bug and, and how did you get to hang out with the rat guys when you were 13 and 14 and be on set for these videos and, and just, sort of... I wasn't that, that, that's, that's not the true story. I mean, I wasn't quite that young, Okay, but I'll tell you, I, uh, I have an older sister and she moved up to Hollywood before me. I grew up in orange County. So I was like an hour from Hollywood, you know, and, and Hollywood was of course exploding at that point in time. It was just like crazy. And she moved up here on her own and she had a boyfriend and he was a singer of lunatic fringe. His name was Peter and amazing guy, amazing singer. And just, I really loved him. He was like, I really looked up to him as like a big brother type thing. And, and I was just a little punk rock kid from orange County, you know, 
playing in a garage band, you know, I was playing, I was playing house parties and I'd never even played a club cause I was too young, but I was like in it, you know, I, I've been in a band since I was 16. And, and so cut to, I came up to see like with a strip for the first time. And there was these no bozo all ages shows It's called no bozo jam at the whiskey. So right. every Monday night, yeah, every Monday night they had like the best bands on the strip. And it was like, a really low cover charge. I think it was, it might've been free. No, it wasn't free, but like a low cover charge, all ages. And Peter was in a band called lunatic fringe. And this is when love hate was like the band. Love hate was like yeah, yeah, floating yeah. on blackout in yeah. the red room. That's great band. Great blackout album by the red room. I what? was there. I was there before they got signed. So like the shows were nuts. Like, so I had never seen, I never seen rock bands. Like I was in a punk rock. I had only seen like independent rock bands at like Fender's ballroom in long beach, you know? So the first show I went to was, uh, was the Ramones, you know? And I saw bands like the Ramones wow. and blast and S SNFU and stuff like that. You know, I'd never seen like rock bands, you know? So I went there and I saw love hate and they just blew my mind and lunatic fringe was great. And then they were all friends with Bobby at the time. And that's when I met Bobby and, uh, so yeah, we all kind of, I went up there on a regular basis after that and just was like this young kid always hanging around these dudes and just kind of soaking it all up. And, and that's, that, that was the experience. Yeah, that was, what great times and, and just that blackout in the red room, that is one of the best debut albums you're, you're going to find. It's just, wow. An, ama an amazing record and did not, did not get the love that it really deserved. You know? No, it, it fell between the cracks of hair metal yep. is ending and you're not grunge. You're sort of this hybrid. And yes, I feel so bad for those guys to this day because, you know, I just thought they were so talented. And, and Jizzy was like such an amazing singer. He's still singing great to this day, you know, and just just all the guys were really great. And they had a really good chemistry and dynamic. And anyways. Yeah. yeah and they've got he's got a new solo album coming out soon. Um. So, so talk to me about then the, those early days of making it. How is that different for a band coming up today? Because, you know, you tried, of course, you did the Josh Todd and the Conflict, and you, you mentioned that it was a bit more difficult to, to build a new brand. How was it from those club moments and, and meeting people? Sort of what was the trajectory for you? Was it just you did these gigs and then you got discovered and yay, everybody's happy? Or, or how much of a, of a struggle was it? No, no, it was a lot of work. You mean establishing Buck Perry? Yeah, first, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I came to L.A. Uh, I was in a band called Slamhound for five years before Buck Cherry. Yep. I didn't, you know, and so I I was on the cover of Rock City News six months after I got to L.A. with the band Slamhound. And I, and I thought, okay, I've arrived. I'm a rock star. This is going to, it's, it's on, it's going to blow up from here. And it didn't. We got like a little independent record label. We almost got a major deal, but it fell through the cracks because of a lot of things happened. And and uh, so I was on a little indie label and then I made a record and it didn't get released because it lost all its financial backing. So it was like this sad story, you know, and then here I was 26 years old and I thought it was over for me that I was too old, you know, and and uh, and that's when I met Keith shortly after that. And we just started writing songs and and then I just started hustling. And what we did was I had a phone sales gig, right? So that's what I was doing to pay my rent. And so I'm like, uh, me and my bass player worked together. And I was like, let's let's use the phone lines to to 
you know, manage our band. We'll book shows up and down the coast of California because the thing that you, you didn't want to fall in the rut of doing is playing Hollywood too much. You know, you wanted to build up your following so that when you played Hollywood, it was crazy, you know? So that's what we did. We would go down to San Diego and we would play and there would be like, you know, 50 people. And then we would go up to Northern California and we played this little bar called Whitey's, right? And we didn't know that it was close to a uh, military base. So Wow. All these all these military personnel would come and they would get loaded and then, and then when we played they would go crazy. So we would go up there and it would be like 50 people and then it, you know we come home and then the next month we go up and there'd be like 100 people and then it just became this thing where we would just keep working these territories outside of LA and creating this buzz and and then by the time it was time to like go hey you know what we got we got a buzz so we, we went and got an entertainment attorney to set up some shows at the Viper Room and the Whiskey, right? A series of shows and that we would get all the record people and everybody down and we would basically showcase to get a record deal. But at that point in time, we would just give, we would give away like two song free demos on cassette. So people knew our songs, right? So when we, when we came to the Viper Room, sold out, everybody's singing the songs like we're in an arena rock show and there's no, we have no record out, nothing. And so these record people would come in there and they were, they saw these people reacting to this music and singing the songs. And, you know, we are really an unknown band and uh, they were pretty impressed. And then it was after one show at the whiskey, it was a series of shows, like I said, the showcases. And then it was after the whiskey that Michael Goldstone, our, a&R guy at uh, DreamWorks, uh, he just was like, we were walking up the hill, uh, you know, going to our cars. And he's like, hey, guys, uh, Michael Goldstone. We're like, yeah, we know who you are. And he's like, hey, I was wondering if you guys want to do a record together. And I was like, what? You know, this is a guy who signed Rage Against the Machine and Pearl Jam. And we were like, oh, my God, like, this is amazing. And so that was kind of the moment we met him. And then everything kind of happened at that point. We got on there. But I got to tell you one funny story. Before those showcases happen, right, there's there's this thing popping out right above my groin area, right? I, I don't know what's going on. I go and I got a hernia, right? right? I had a hernia started and I got all these shows. And every time I sing, the thing pops out, like it starts popping out. Yeah. And I go to the doctor and he says, he says, listen, he goes, lay down. So when I lay down, it goes flat. He goes, if you lay down and this thing doesn't go flat, you have about two hours to get to the hospital. And I go, okay. I go, I can't stop singing. I got these shows. I'm on the brink of getting a record deal. I can't cancel them. And so he goes, all right, you're rolling the dice. I go, I got to roll the dice. <laughs> so I went into those shows singing with a inguinal hernia. Basically. Yeah. I had a, I had a hernia popping out the size of a golf ball while I'm singing, you know, and hoping that it didn't rupture during these shows. And, Anyways, uh, long story short, we, we did it. We landed the deal, and then I went and had surgery. Wow, what a great story. And, of course, that led to the album Buck Cherry, which came out in 99. So as we head into 2019 and we get to that sort of anniversary year of this record, anything planned for it? I mean, do, do you want to look back on it and, and, and celebrate it somehow? I mean, I know you still play Lit Up, and there's a lot of, um, you know, 20 years of that album. It's, it's fantastic. Right. You, thank you. Yeah, you know, I'm not a looking back type of guy, you know, but uh, right. I uh, I'd be happy to do the record in its entirety if if right. we 
it, you know, if, if it was a thing where we could do a select some select cities and, and there was a big demand for it, of course I'd do it. But if it's, you know, it, it, that's it. I, I would do it if, if, you know, if the demand was high, there's no problem. Well, it, 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 I think it requires at least a whiskey show where you sort of do the whole thing and then, you know, tape it or whatever. <laughs> right, just one of those back well, that, to the roots. The thing is, is, the thing is to rehearse and get that thing ready to really put on a, a great headlining show because, you know, we haven't done that in a long time. So to do that, I would want to do more than just one show, you know? Right. Well, yeah, but I think it's, I think it's certainly something worth looking into. I think fans would get a, a huge kick out of it. And I, I just want to go For over. Sure. Oh, it, it would be fantastic. And you got to include the, uh, the bonus track there. The, um, what was it? Uh, Late nights in voodoo. You can't, you can't do it without that one. Um, Late nights in voodoo and fastback 69. And yeah. Cool. You got to do the whole thing. Um, where I really got into to Buck Cherry, of course, like like many people, was the 15 album. Uh, take me back to that one because you you had done two albums. You you stepped away from it all. It was like, yeah, we're you know the solo album comes out. Uh, just took, talk to me about sort of getting it back together and saying, you know what, we can do this. We can get a new lineup. We're gonna make this great. And then it just exploded. Everybody just went, oh yeah, Buck Cherry great band i mean right i mean so many things happened on the hiatus you know and uh you know it was just thorn in our sides keith and i you know we didn't ever want the situation to happen the way it did and you know we were passionate about buck cherry and what it meant and uh so it was always in the back of my mind and um it was just the right time and uh you know stevie at the time kind of kind of was the catalyst that that reunited Keith and I at that time because we we hadn't talked for a while so um and that that's what happened and we just we had like these uh you know we had a group of guys in mind just Jimmy and Xavier and Stevie and and like let's just book a rehearsal and we you know we had this thing that we were like I don't want to do this unless it's fun and it was fun and you know once I commit to something, I'm like the most loyal, dedicated workaholic you'd ever meet, you know? So once I kind of felt the power of what it could be in that rehearsal room that day, everybody was kind of in the same spot in their lives. It was just the perfect uh, storm, you know? And it was like, let's go. I go, let's, let's five days a week. I made a rehearsal schedule. I'm like five days a week bring your, bring your, uh, your share of rehearsal money, right? Rent. And, and we'll see you tomorrow at like one thirty. And I still was kind of skeptical. Are they going to show up? Are these guys going to be like on it professional because I can't stand people who aren't. And, uh, they showed up and it was just like, we just started writing that record every day. And, and you know what, there was nothing indicating that it was going to be what it was. There was nobody, did you know, nobody signed that record when it was done and ready. No one in the United States signed it. Yeah. Well, I can believe that. that. Our... <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it was that time where people were sort of really getting into the Hannah Montana segment of the, of the music business and, and, and rock and a dirty rock album was not, but wow, what a difference it made. How much of that was born out of sort of, 
you know, the project, the the the, the pre-Velvet Revolver thing where you and, and, and Keith sort of got in and did some shows and, and rehearsed with them? Like, did that sort of rebuild the, yeah, we got to go rock again? Was was that part of it? Or? No. 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 No, like, the, the, the timeline on that is we got home from the Time Bomb tour. It was... It was a really tough tour because we were riding high on the first record and it was just, uh, it just was a commercial failure. And a, lo- a lot of it had to do with kind of a, the battle we were going through with our A&R guy and, uh, and us. And, and uh, it was just heartbreaking for us. And we were having internal problems. And so uh, the bass player left on the road. And then uh, we let... Uh, when we got rid of the drummer and, and, and the other guitar player, and it was just Keith and I. So we were like back home writing demos for the next Buck Cherry record. The label didn't drop us. They still wanted us. And we're writing for the next Buck Cherry record. And, and during that time is when we wrote uh, Crazy Bitch. And then cut to we're writing demos and Slash calls up Keith and just says, hey, doing a Randy Castillo benefit over here at the Key Club in L.A., for Randy Castillo and want to know if you guys want to, you know, get up with me, Duff and Matt and do some cover songs and put on a show, you know, and we'll do some Buck Cherry stuff. We'll do Aerosmith and some GNR. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And so we did it. And the show like had this big buzz around it after we did it, everybody loved it. And everybody was talking about it after the fact. And Keith and I were like, Oh, it felt good to be in like, it felt like, it felt like Buck Cherry with really great players. Right. Right. So, uh, we were thinking, Hey, let's see if these guys want to do something. And then they were thinking, let's see if these guys want to do something. And, and that's when we started writing songs and it wasn't like a velvet revolver thing or anything. It was just like, we just started writing songs, started like getting together and meeting as a band. And it, it was really cool. It, it went as far as we were taking management meetings and we were working on names for the band. And, and then slash just came in and abruptly pulled the plug. It was like a month. It was like a month of time and collectively, you know, but, and then he just said he didn't want to do it. And that was it. But, but, but the, the, the short version of the story is that it turned out okay because you got 15 after that and Buck Cherry became this massive brand again. Or it, Well, it, it didn't turn out okay because that's when Keith and I took our hiatus. I had had enough of not being in a band and, and just like, you know, all, all of the, all of that was like really hard for me to deal with because I was just like, I got to be in a band, man. I, I got to make music. I got to be in a fucking gang. You know, I can't do this bullshit. Like these non-committal people who say they're doing one thing and, and another thing. I just, I was over it. And, and Keith, uh, moved on with those guys and thinking that that was going to be, uh, his situation. And that's what I thought. So, um, he, he let, he moved on with those guys and I got pretty pissed off about it. And that's it. I went my separate way and, um, he wound up not doing anything with them later on. And I don't know what he did. Like, he was like, like he had, he did odd jobs and I went out there and, uh, did the Josh Todd band. And it turned well, that turned out great. And so I'll, I'll just finish on that, on this then, uh, just looking back at the time bomb album, Great songs on there, Whiskey in the Morning, Slamming, uh, Porno Star Time. I mean, just, but it didn't have the commercial success of the first one. Uh, how do you look back on it? Were, were there mistakes made? Did it come out too fast? Was it, were there songs not there? I mean, 
I mean, I can tell you honestly what happened. We we had a battle with our A and R guy. He wanted to put anything, anything on the record. We did anything, anything song for the for the road trip soundtrack, and it was a movie. And we did drama ramas, anything, anything, and he really liked it. He's like, we gotta we gotta put this song on on the Buck Cherry record and make it a single. And I was like, I was like, at that time I was still young and filled with piss and vinegar and I wanted to write my own songs. I didn't want to like have success on somebody else's hits, you know? So that didn't sit well with me. And I said to him, Hey man, I don't want to do that. We'll just write more songs. If you're not happy with the record, we already had the record, you know, done and ready to go. And, and so it became this power play, right? Which I didn't even know about. I thought it was just like, Hey, you know what? I understand where you're coming from. Let us write some more songs. We want to like, you know, we're songwriters. We, we, you know, we care about our craft and our brand and what we want to put out. And we'll just write more songs if you guys aren't happy. And, and so it became this power play and they just greenlit the record. They gave it no love. There was no push. We went out there and toured as long as we could on our own dime. And then that was it. You know, because they didn't, they only pushed one single and it was riding. And then we just, we came home. Wow. That, that's a pit. And, and I, I see both points of view on that. Cause anything, anything, it, your version is absolutely slamming. And, but on the other hand, I see your point. If you don't want to be the cover band, but guys, you want to do your own thing. So, nah. but, uh, no, nah, I mean, you know, I'd already had, we'd already had hits though on the first record. So looking back is like, Oh, it wouldn't have been bad because we already had our own hits, but still, you know, as far as my integrity, I was just like, you know, it's, it's, a, I like the song and everything, but like to like base my whole shot in my second, my sophomore record on that song. Like I, I just, I didn't see it and, and get it at the time, you know? Yeah, I, I agree with you and I appreciate that, that integrity and, and I could have seen it as like the third single off the album. Let you, you know, but anyway, um, the tour, of, <laughs> right, right. It's a great song, though. Uh, the Gen X tour, of course, starts uh, in the end of June, runs through or into September. Uh, of course, uh, P.O.D. Yep. Lit, Alien Ant Farm. It is going to be an absolutely fantastic, fantastic package with great, great songs that everybody loves. And uh, Josh, always, always a pleasure. Yes, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's going to be a great show. Come out and have some fun with us. It's going to be a lot of hits and all these guys bring a great live situation and and like I said, the band's hitting on all cylinders, so I'll see you at the Rock Show. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. All right, buddy. You too. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. Big thank you to uh, Josh Todd. Of course, the Gen X Tour all summer long. I will be catching it July 30th in Watertown, New York. Very, very much looking forward to that, Bill. Welcome back. Let us talk anthrax. Have, have Were you ever a thrash metal guy? Or did, did you ever sort of have your ears peaked by the anthraxes or the slayers or the metallicas of the world? Well, I, honestly, I don't, I'm not good enough to play that stuff that's that fast. Um, you know, you really need a, a special skill set to play that kind of challenging guitar playing. Um, I do see the immense talent in in, in that in, in Anthrax. Uh, I mean, they're an incredible band. I did have the pleasure of uh, having dinner with Joey Belladonna uh, one night when we were up in Buffalo. He's a super guy and a great singer. Um, so, and a huge, huge yeah. Journey fan. That's the funny thing about him. Yeah. His, his melodic vocal stylings, for the lack of a better word, 
when you see him, sometimes he's covered Journey songs and he's covered some just fantastic stuff. I mean, he's almost, almost in the wrong band, you know? It's it's kind of a great, unique thing. I mean, I, I think it just really, really works. And I'm, yeah, and he's a super cool guy, too. And, and he just sang the national anthem, and you can see it on YouTube. He just nailed it, you know? Scott Ian was there. I've met him before. He's a super cool guy. So yeah, man, they're they're a great band. I I just I'm not good enough to play it, but uh, listening to it, I just, my jaw drops, and I'm like, how do these guys do this? You yeah. know, how can you know how can a human being? I mean, the right arm on Scott Ian must he must be able to arm wrestle you know Arnold Schwarzenegger and win because it's so strong. Uh, it, you know. Yeah, but you're right though. You know, uh, a lot of. Um, mainstream media when you look at your rolling stones or your billboards or whatever especially back in the day they would sort of poo-poo the the entire metal scene or they would poo-poo the thrash metal scene as these guys are just screaming and it's blah 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 but the level of musicianship i mean even look look at charlie benente on drums who we're going to speak to in a minute what he does at the intensity that he does at, at the length of a show and at the fact that, you know, as we start getting past our 40s and into our 50s and all, and he's still doing it, that is just incredible uh, stamina and incredible uh, ability. Um, so, so talk to me just for you, though, in terms of guitar playing. You say you don't have the chops. What does it sort of take to, to play at that level? Well, the tempos are so, are so fast that if you're off a little bit in time, it really shows. So you really have to just train yourself to play, you know, not only lead guitar, but your rhythm guitars at a really fast tempo and, and playing stuff like that. You got to be so accurate and so good. And it's, it's a different, it's a different level of training. And I mean, you know, some people train for the sprint, some people train for the marathon. Uh, they're, you know, 10 times faster than the sprint. <laughs> so yeah, they, they really I mean, are. And and it's it's awesome. I mean, it just sounds incredible when you when you listen to it. And um, you know, and the, the creativity involved, like you said, I mean, it, it's 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 amazing. So, what are some yeah. of your favorite guitar players in in terms of style? I mean, you know, last week or a couple of weeks ago, we spoke to George Thorogood, and yeah. I really love his guitar playing. It's hmm, what's the word for efficient? No, maybe that's not the. You know what I mean? It's Sometimes less is more. He just he just gives you the notes that 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 just resonate, and he just hit sort of. What is sort of your favorite guitar style, and and sort of who are some of the guys that you looked up to and said, yeah, that's that's for me. Well, for the emotion side of of guitar playing, Neil Sean pops out as as being one of the ones that does great melodies and holds notes and 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 really moves me that way. I also love Eddie Van Halen and Michael Schenker, and um, you know the, those kind of catch ted nugent kind of started things off for me uh as a lot of rock gu- guitar players our age did um ace freely Morris, come on. ace freely oh yeah I, I, you know <laughs> absolutely couldn't couldn't get around uh, you know i mean i was definitely influenced by ace but uh you know i also listened to uh the dixie drag steve morse um yeah uh, I, I he influenced me although i can't play any of his stuff it's too hard for me but uh you know i i think um you know, I think you know if I were to say what who could I listen to all the time, it'd probably be Neil Sean today has stuck with me as being you know like the guy who just just has it all, you know, from yeah. that makes my heart beat, you know. Yeah, and he stylistically from Santana through some of his solo albums and the, and the Journey stuff, 
he sort of hit every kind of, of musical style. He really has something special. And of course, it's funny that you mentioned Neil because wouldn't it be fun to see uh, Joey Belladonna and Neil do a song together? Because Joey, like we said, such a huge fan of Journey. And Neil, of course, in Journey, it would just be a nice combination. So so there you go. Um, then I guess let's get right over to it. Anthrax has a new concert DVD CD called Kings Among Scotland. And so without further ado, here is the one, the only, Blast Beat King, Charlie Benente. We are speaking with Anthrax's Charlie Benente. The new live in-concert DVD CD is Kings Among Scotland. Uh, Charlie, always Always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, same here. Yeah, so look, I, I want to talk about the DVD, but I, I want to get started with the Slayer tour that you are part of, the, the Farewell tour. Um, you know, what is it going to mean to the scene to lose a player like Slayer, to, 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 to have them not be there? What does that do for metal and, and for the metal scene? Well, I think what it does is it uh, definitely reduces game a bit here because they were part of a a movement in the in the 80s a whole more like uh this american metal that took over from its previous uh uh you know stars like you know the iron maidens and the the judas priests you know stuff like that we we took from them and now here we were wow coming up and slayer were a big part of that and uh their style their brand of music and a lot of the topics with which what they talked about really influenced bands to come you know a whole other subgenre of metal you know yeah it really did now does it give pause to thought for for anthrax in terms of your own longevity do you do you look at it now and say you know, are we down to our last five years? Are we down to our last couple of years? Do you start thinking about farewell and and sort of slowing down the machine, or you're you haven't reached that yet? Um, I really think that I haven't really entertained that thought. Okay. As clearly as I I I, I need to at this point. I know I know we're all getting kind of a bit road weary here and there and some of our you know joints and bones tell us you know you gotta slow down a little bit here <laughs> um but when we're up there doing it we kind of forget about all those things and uh all the years of of touring and playing and you see the audience and you feel the audience and your your muscle memory just kind of takes over for you and you forget about it until later on you know what i mean so um, I really don't want to think about the day when we're never going to see those people again. And but I know it's going to come, you know. That's yeah, good, and and it's got to be particularly difficult in the genre of music you do, because you know people say, well, BB King and and the Rolling Stones and and Paul McCartney, but but they're not doing blast beats. They're not they're not playing at a hundred miles an hour. Does the the physicality of the music you play? Uh, is that starting to catch up with you? You know, it's funny because uh, you would think that aspect of it would be the toughest part of it, but I think I'm so conditioned to be 
lane like that, that that's the way it is. I, I just know that way. You know, it, it's as if Charlie Watts knows how to play these Stone songs. And yeah, it's easy, but maybe it's not easy for him because that's his level of this is how he plays. So for me, when I get up there, I only play in this type of level. So that isn't the problem. It's afterwards when I'm feeling it a little bit the next day, you know? Yeah, it's it's not the same to, to to do that stuff when you're 25. Now, the the last time we spoke, the the interview sort of went all over the internet. We were talking about new music, and you had said that it was sounding very pissed off and angry again. Now, this goes back to August of 2017. So, where are we in in terms of that process? Is the music still sounding angry and pissed off? Is it still sort of all this piss and vinegar, or or what does the new music sound like at this point? I mean, I sent, uh, I have like, you know, three more demos that I, I, that I've been working on. And, um, these particular songs have a very old school thrash medley feel. Uh, one doesn't sound like that. One sounds kind of in the realm of, uh, uh, breathing lightning slash kind of anti-socialist, you know, type of song. So not everything is sounding angry and pissed off. Um, I'm just angry and pissed off about the state of the country and things that I hear every day that piss me off. Um, I get pissed off about that again. I get pissed off about the state of music. I get pissed off about nobody's trying as hard as they used to anymore to make music and people just are like sheep. They just go along with the herd and just play whatever they feel. Well, these bands sound like that. We're going to sound, I mean, seriously, do you think there's any individual band out there anymore that's saying anything different? I think it all sounds the same. Well, you know, I would agree. And, 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 and funny enough, I was having this conversation with Mike score of a flock of seagulls just yesterday you know, in the 80s, right? But in the 80s, we had the Flock of Seagulls and, and the Poisons and the Anthraxes and the Slayers. And we had all these sort of this, this, this panoply of different music and different genres and different looks and different everything. And, and now when you look out there, really all you see is, you know, shades of... of of uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know, there's rap and, and 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 there's a little bit of country, but there's not a lot of, of diversity. And, and the image with with most of them is very very similar. And uh, it's a shame that that we we we've sort of lost that. Um, how important? I think it's uh, good. Sorry, no, no, no. I was going to say, but how important is is it for Anthrax to put out new music? Because you know, a lot of the bands. Uh, especially from back in the day, they just tour and they don't put out music. But for Anthrax, not only have you just put out music, you've put out some of the best music of your career. I mean, for all of Kings and and worship music, it's not just a new album from Anthrax. It's like a new great album from Anthrax. So how important is it for you to to, to stay vibrant and, and stay on top of your game and stay with writing new albums and getting them out? It's, it's very important, and I'll tell you why. Uh, for me personally, it keeps me on my toes. It keeps the band, I feel, uh, you know, reverent. It, it keeps us wanting to do better because when we do a meet and greet or a record signing or whatever it is, and you meet these young kids who come over with your record and they tell you how much they love it, dude, that, that goes a long way nowadays, believe me. Do you really think that 
how many times can you hear a band and I'm just being serious about this nowadays is like, how many times can you hear a band playing that same tired corn riff with someone screaming over it? Um, and when I, when I use corn as a reference, it's because they've ripped off corn so much. And, and I think corn knows it too. It's like, Jesus Christ, everything sounds like us, you know? And then you got this dude screaming over it and it's like, okay, that's good for the moment. But where are you in a year from now? Where do you go from, from that? You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it, it really has become very similar. Um, I do want to ask you about one album that you have back in the back in the day on uh, May 25th, 1993. So 25 years ago, Sound of White Noise came out. How important was that album in your career? Because there were a lot of changes going on, not just within the band, but also the musical scene. Um, how important was that album for what you what, what you do and what you had to do? And, and the fact that it did it how can I put this, give you a little bit of a, of a renewal and, and, and sort of kept you relevant and kept you going. How important was sound of white noise to anthrax and its longevity? Okay. So in order for me to kind of talk about that record, I have to go back to that place that we were at that time. And we had just come off of this huge thing that we did with public enemy and pretty much, I think it helped change the climate of of yeah, the it did. of music and um in some ways it hurt us after that too because um I think a lot of our hardcore metal fans I think kind of turned their back on us for doing that and that's the truth um I don't think they were ready for it uh and agreed and then what did we do after that Oh, we even changed things even more. We changed the singer who's been a part of our sound for the beginning. And now here we are changing that. And I think we were in a, in a state of um, definitely not looking to the future. We were just doing it now. And we were challenging ourselves, I think. And we were definitely making a, a musical statement there. But... I don't know if I look back at it. I don't have any regrets about it, but there's things that I would have done maybe differently. In terms of, of writing and playing or in terms of setting up the album and, and, and who can you... I, I think the record itself is great. I think the person we chose to produce it was also tagged to that whole grunge, the grunge thing that was coming. And right. I think it sounded a little like that genre of music and less like the genre that we help create. Right. True. But, but it's amazing to think that it's 25 years old now, because when I think of sound of white noise, to me, it's just the new album from anthrax, because that's sort of how I, I, I saw it. I've always seen it. And it's 25 years old. Um, how important or what kind of pressure was was there on you when when making it? Because, again, with the, the change of a singer, was there a record company breathing down your back? And and was there this need to to succeed with it or, you know, how, how well, much? Well, that's what I said. I got to go back into that time. Now, we we had just signed with Electra Records. We got a really big deal. Um, 
we had such a great team that was in place that brought us there. They wanted this to hit and they wanted this to hit big. Um, so we gave them the, 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 the songs and, and then they loved it. And we had an A&R guy who really, really championed the whole project. And they did the right things. They got us played on MTV. They got the song to radio. So things were starting to look great. Um, the record at the time, uh, it, I think it came in at number three on Billboard or something like that. We went on to sell 800-something thousand copies. And then it, it, I think it did reach platinum status at this point. So they were, they were extremely happy with it. And so were we. And here we were. We, we had a, a Van Halen-like experience happening. And, and, and yeah, it was great. And it actually, uh, I'm looking at the Billboard right now. It reached number seven on uh, Billboard's uh, 200, which is impressive for, for many things in terms of um, – the time where where rock and and metal and and thrash metal was out of the sort of the, the you know people were losing interest and yet here here comes the band and puts together this great great thing now um kings among scotland uh, talk to me about this package because it, it's got this great package you've got a cd that's that has a different track listing and you've got the the blu-ray um talk to me about scotland and why there why not bring it to you know brooklyn or why not bring it to you know, Chicago. <laughs> okay, so there was a, a reason behind the whole thought process. We, one of the first places that really embraced the band was England and, and Scotland. We've always had this relationship with, with our Scottish fans, and it was always a great, wherever we played, it was always a great show. So we felt at this point we wanted to kind of do it there and document it. And we wanted to do it at this place called the Barrow Lands. That was one of the first places that we played. It just had this uh, this vibe to it. And we just wanted to recreate it. And that's the real reason why we did it. And, and it's a great package. Will there be, um, after the Slayer tour, a, a, an Anthrax tour where um, you might go and, and, and sort of feature uh, this, the Scotland DVD and play that, that, that sort of set? <laughs> You know, it's, I'm not going to say no, but, in, you know, who knows? You never know. Right. So, I mean, uh, it, it's a bit of a challenge to play an album in its entirety, uh, but we've done it. And, and, cool. and, I, I enjoy it. Yeah, and it's doable. So uh, the cover, of course, is uh, a derivative or, or derivation of the Kiss Rock and Roll over cover. Um, as a Kiss fan, I, I want to ask you, uh, Talk, talk to me about that album in terms of rock and roll over. Were you a fan or, or not, not, not were you a fan, but how great is rock and roll over? Uh, it's my favorite studio kiss album. Um, I got it when it first came out. And I remember going back to my house and going to my room, putting it on, getting all the stuff that was inside of it. And I, I remember it was an immediate classic. And when I say an immediate classic, it's as if these songs I knew already, and I, you may feel the same way. Like every song was just so amazing, one after the other. And it was just like, this is the band that really changed things for me. You know, everything yeah. about that album, the cover, 
those songs, man. Come on. I mean, I want you, Dr. Love, fucking... Making just, love. Yeah, it's just funny because, you know, when Kiss looks back at their own catalog, they always say that Destroyer is the album. And and I hate to say this, and I know fans will, will, will take me up on it, but I, I've always thought that, that Destroyer is a great album, but it's overrated. I don't think it's the best one. I think, you know, if you look at Rock and Roll Over or even the first one or even Creatures of the Night, I think they capture the essence of Kiss uh, more than Destroyer. Would you consider destroyer overrated as well is that is that blasphemy to say no it's because it's i understand how how you mean it and i understand why you're saying that too i think destroyer gets such uh accolades because of a the bob ezrin tie-in the the anthem that is detroit rock city is on that record um which is undeniable it's that's such a kiss song um but i think for me, it didn't sound like Kiss production-wise. Right. It's it didn't have that alive rawness to it, whereas Rock and Roll Over sounds like that band. See, right? I mean, I think if you take Destroyer and you peel back some of the bells and whistles, you've got a great rock album. But when you've got children's choirs and sound effects and car crashes, it's it's more of a soundtrack to a movie than 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 a Kiss album and. God, the hate that we're going to get for saying this is is, is going to be unbelievable. But I do want to bring yeah, but that. Not, but, but we're not hating on that Destroyer. We're just saying how we right. think Rock and Roll Over is more of a Kiss album than Destroyer is. I even think Dress to Kill is more of a Kiss album. You know, oh, Dress to Yeah, dre... I mean, Hotter Than Hell and Dress to Kill are fantastic. They where they suffer is the production because when you listen to them now, they sound sort of muddy. But if you yeah. could. Um, if you could somehow clean those up, or and I, and I don't want to say re-record them, but because you, you can't, but if there was a way to to, to digitally remix them, and and, <laughs> and, and that that man, mm-mm, anything for my baby. That's wow. That's that's classic kiss. But I, I do want to talk to you about about the uh, the imagery and the merchandising because you do have this tie-in, and you do a lot of the album covers and a lot of the work for for uh, Anthrax. Uh, mm-hmm. When you come up with a concept, what's sort of the first thing that comes to mind? Is it, wow, this is going to look good on a T-shirt and we're going to sell a lot of them? Or what? Or, or is it, or, I mean, talk to me about the artwork that you create for Anthrax and then what's sort of the primary, can we say the primary primary objective? What What's sort of the, the thought process that goes behind the art that you create for the band? I think it, it kind of reflects the, the tone of the music. That's where it usually that's when the ideas start to flow when you have like the whole, not the whole album, but you have at least six or seven songs that are kind of almost pushing you towards this vision or this look with, with this one, this Kings among Scotland, uh, it, everybody knows that rock and Lover has been one of my favorite album covers of all time besides queen news of the world. Um, you know, it's just, it's just iconic and it's so different from destroyer that everything just pops out at you. And I was like, I want to recreate this, but I want to do it in a way that uses the colors from for all Kings and put little secret things in there. Like the teardrop, like Scott's beard would be like the tongue, uh, in, in the crown that I have, you'll see a coffee mug and snare drum. It's just, 
I just wanted to give the fans, oh, that's cool, that's cool, you know, like Kiss used to do. Um, and I was a little worried that maybe those guys wouldn't dig it, you know, meaning Kiss, and sent it to Gene, and he loved it. And his quote was, you guys promote Kiss more than Kiss promotes Kiss. <laughs> and um, it's something that I'm never embarrassed about or ashamed of doing because, like, if it wasn't for them, I probably wouldn't be in this situation. So I'd have to blame them for anything, you know? Uh, but they meant so much to me from 73 or 74 till 79 that it never leaves me. And I'm always thinking of ways of being clever with it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, 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 how important then are visuals uh, to a band? Because I mean, obviously, you put out an album, but if it, I think a lot of us we remember the album cover and the album artwork, and we we've sort of lost that now with these digital downloads and the streaming, where it, it, it's 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 lost its personality. So. How important? Oh, believe me, I had a dude. You don't even know the shit that I caught for saying this thing about Apple a couple of months ago, and this dude on that the site Metal Sucks like came down on me for it, and I was just like, we had to talk about it, and I tried to explain things to him about how the it's a a missing art, and it's a it's it's going to disappear if people don't speak up more about it. Um, but I think we got something got lost in translation when I said that. And, uh, you know, people stream music nowadays for the sole reason as they don't really, some of, some of these people don't have a place to go and listen to music. So everything, everything is on their phone. Their lives are on their phone and they stream it all because of that situation that we're in. But not all people do that. There's a lot of metalheads. There's a lot of hard rock fans who do choose to listen to music the way it was. Okay. I'm one of those people. I'll drive in my car blasting shit. And that's just the way I like my music to be. And I'm sure a lot of fans would agree with me. Yeah, fuck that. We want the same thing. We want to buy it. We want to open it up. We want to smell it, you know? Yeah, and, I, and I, but I'm also just trying to think of what metal would have been like in the '80s without imagery or without, because some of the things when you, when you look back at Black Sabbath and when you look back at Van Halen, you look back. I don't think those bands would be as big or as ingrained into our consciousness if it wasn't for that cool T-shirt or that 1984 cover or or the Rock and Roll Over cover or the Love Gun cover. I mean that's as essential to the music as the music, right? Absolutely. I mean, let's speak about a new fan, a new generation of fans right. who are coming to the shows and they want that same experience that their brothers had or their dads had. So what do they want to do? They want something to show they were there and they are representing and they love this band and believe me for me a lot of times when i was younger it was important for me to almost use a t-shirt as a social media tool if someone saw me walking down the street with an iron maiden shirt they immediately knew that they had something in common with me and you would almost make friends like we would go hang out at the shows early and that's how you kind of made friends that was social media back then 
you know? And I think the t-shirt, the art is so important to it because it's like, it's like wearing, you know, a badge. It's, it's just, it expresses something about you. I'm, I'm down with this whole thing. And people just lost it. They just lost the art of it. Not all, some. Us metalheads, look, we played last night to 26,000 people in Chicago. Wow. You're going to tell me that hard rock metal is dead? No. No, and, and quite frankly, you know, you played to 26,000 last night, and on the other side of the coin, Def Leppard in Pennsylvania played to 27,000, and folks are going to run around saying rock is dead, and and the, the, the heritage acts are dead, and it's like, you, you know what? Between Anthrax no. and Def Leppard, you have 50, 50 what, uh, 27 and, and 53,000 people in two different cities are, are seeing these two bands? Uh, doesn't sound like right. it's dead to me, right? Um, no, and, and when you say things like that, or when you promote shit like that, if you equate that to the reason why, and I'm going off here for a bit, when you equate that to something like, this is why Donald Trump won, is because these forgotten people that people just want to sweep under the rug and say, these people don't exist. I say, that's bullshit, because they are out there. Okay, and... When the media does stuff like that and forces stuff like if you watch, let's take this into consideration. I'm a big SNL fan. I watched SNL since the beginning. Right. This season, for me, every show had a hip hop artist on. Maybe not every show, but the majority was was that. And for me, I have no problem with hip hop, but let's spread out the the love the taste right let's spread the taste out here i don't want this forced down my throat every fucking time there are other artists out there who deserve the same type of thing and i think it's making me hate hip hop now because i feel like it's so shoved down these kids throats and it's it's not good it's not a good thing to do because there will be a rebellion <laughs> Yeah, and seeing, and that brings me back to the point of my conversation with Mike Score of a flock of seagulls. That's what was so great about the early '80s. There wasn't just, you know, hip hop and what. There, there was all kinds of. There was there was something for every taste, and and it's a shame that a band like Anthrax and a band like Def Leppard and Slayer and and they're playing to over twenty thousand people, and NBC or the Billboard Awards won't even acknowledge that you exist. You will never get an invite to be on SNL. No. You'll never, never get an invite never. to the Today Show, whatever morning. What, and and it's it's ridiculous. And no, it's it's a silent success. They don't want to do it because they don't feel it's relevant. They don't feel like a younger. Or, and, and I always say this: you guys cater too much to the kids. You know, uh, a lot of these kids that we see don't want to hear about that shit. They want to hear about day to day stuff and what they like. And and it just bothers me about this whole thing and trying to say that records don't sell anymore and this doesn't sell. Jack White, for instance, put out a new record a couple of weeks back, sold so many, so much vinyl that how could you ignore that? There is a market for it. There's people want that. So please stop telling everybody that streaming is the way to go. The only reason why people stream is the reason I said. They cannot afford certain things. 
This is the only thing that they could afford is the phone. So they use it for everything. Yeah, you're right. And and I think my best quote on streaming comes from an interview I did with Alice Cooper. And he said to me, I don't want to own air. And that was the best quote. It's like, you're right. I don't want to own air. Right. I, I want to own the rock and roll over vinyl and smell it and touch it. Um, so so I, recently in an interview, you were talking about how metal fans are loyal. And I've always agreed. I think the, the metal community is one of the most loyal because you look at the bands out there, Anthrax, Slayer. Uh, and, and I'll even go into the, to, you know, to the, the, the more melodic rock stuff, the Def Leppards, the Bon Jovis. A lot of them are million dollar touring acts. 30 years later, what is it about about us, that that community that that keeps us loyal and keeps us coming back? I think it's it's it, you could definitely equate it to family life. The way you are with your family is the way you are with the bands that grew that you grew up with and, and just put so much love and effort into all of it. I mean, that's my biggest thing about the metal community. They are so loyal, but yet they can be so vicious to other acts and other bands. And um, I never understood why they do that. Like, really, the community has, has gotten smaller and smaller in a sense. And you should really appreciate, like, take the time to just say, well, I'm not going to say this band sucks. Let me, um, let me try and hear what they're doing. And then if it, at the end of the day, you feel like this, this is crap, then, okay, great. But don't just say something sucks even before you hear it. Let's give it a shot. Like, I'll never forget when this Axel ACDC thing was announced. Dude, people were up in arms about it. I know. I remember I, saying, uh, give I'll, it a chance. I'm going to cut you off. I thought that was the greatest thing ever because it, it brought two of the greatest, and, and I know people hate the word, but brands together. And if you've ever been to a Guns N' Roses show, you saw them do a whole lot of Rosie and stuff like that. It, it, it was the only move ACDC could do. ACDC could not go to YouTube and find a new guy to come sing for that. That just would not have worked. And who could replace him? You know, I, 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 as soon as I heard it, my brain did the mashup in my head. And I thought this, this could be great. And you know what? I saw it at Madison Square Garden and I almost had tears in my eyes because of, how great it was and the songs that they were pulling out. And I thought Axel was awesome. It wasn't about Axel. It was about ACDC. And I appreciated, I saw him in a different light when well, I saw that show. I just thought it was amazing. But but did you see, if you, if you watch any of the clips on YouTube, you can see sort of his smile on his face. There, there's such a joy it would what be, he's doing. Right. I mean, it would be like if, if Kiss called you up and said, hey, you know what? We need a drummer for oh, this yeah. tour and you got to play 30 oh, yeah. shows, right? I would love it. I would I would have... You'd a, cry every night. The, <laughs> yeah. I, the makeup would be a, a smile that, that I would just put a smile on my face every night because I would be in my glory playing these songs that were like nursery rhymes to me. You know what I mean? So maybe that's how Axel felt. Like, I love yeah. this. This is where I want to be. This is where I'm. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. And I think metal fans in general, um, like everybody on this tour, every band on this tour is so cool and down to earth. Like we'll just wander all in the catering room 
and we'll just all sit together at different tables and just kind of bullshit about whatever. I'll just two days ago, I was with sitting with Nurgle, sitting with Randy and some uh, Alex from Testament, and we were just talking about shit. And it was just like it's so great that we could all just kind of do that because we all are for the same cause. And, and it's a great cause. And I'll tell you, the, the one disappointment with the Axel DC or the Axel and ACDC thing to me is that they didn't release a live package. I, I think a live compilation of, of whatever show or a combination of shows would have just been the cherry on top for fans. And it would have been such a memento. And man, I hope they do a studio album, quite frankly. I really do. I hear they are. I was I saw Del James the other night and we were talking about stuff and uh, I think he alluded to that like that's going to happen. But you're right. I have a I have a bootleg of uh, two shows that they did and uh, it's really good. I just wish the quality was better. But I bet they had a tape show or two. You know, they had to. And and, and some of the songs they pulled out were were insane. And that's why you would be great for Kiss because I could imagine you saying. Hey, pull out anything for my baby. Hey, how about uh, how about take me? Let's do like second song. Let's do coming home and uh, let's do let's bring back making love and let's bring back ladies room and you know let's try love them leave them. You know, that would be so great, Uh, Charlie. Always, always a pleasure and uh, just just great, great stuff. And I know you're. You're you're just sort of hanging out there at the venue, but uh, just always great. And uh, Anthrax shows are just always spectacular. That's one band that over the years has never called it in on a live date. You always show up and give everything. You leave it on the table every time. Oh, I appreciate that, dude. And we we go back such a long way. And I know you've always been supportive. And, you know, every time I read something that you write, it's always, if you love that band, it's always from the heart. So I appreciate that. Oh, and you know what? And I love music in general, and I'm always here to promote anything. It's just, you know, what what's life without music? I mean, what would we be doing if we didn't have music in our lives? It would be awful, you know? What would we do? We would be probably not living. I mean, there'd be nothing to do. So, so, so thank you. And I look forward to the next uh, Anthrax album. The last two have been spectacular. And in fact, you've been on, on such a winning streak for the last, God, well, I would say, what is it, 35 years now you've been on a winning streak, right? So keep, keep it up and uh, keep pumping in the new music. And it's, it's good to see that bands like you and Judas Priest are making not just albums, but are making albums that are vital to the, to the discography and, and just great stuff. Uh, thank you as always. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Cheers. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Big thank you to uh, Charlie Benente of Anthrax. Always, always a great pleasure to talk to uh, to Charlie. And uh, Bill, I will remind the folks that you and I will be at the New England Rock Fest August 17th and 18th in Chicopee, Massachusetts. You can check out the full lineup at newenglandrockfest.com. And since you'll be on a computer, you might as well head over to leverty.com and check out all the great stuff that Bill is doing, including offering two songs for the price of one. Who doesn't love a two-for-one? Right, Bill? Right? It's like, buy one, get one free. One sauce fits all. (laughs) Right, exactly. And I I love that. Now, uh, I'm going to get over to Devil Driver here. Des Fafara. He's got uh, the band Devil Driver have a new album out called 
outlaws till the end. And, and it's real interesting because what they've done is they've taken country, so- uh, country songs like Whiskey River, Outlaw Man, uh, Ghost Riders in the Sky, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and they've metalized them. Um, that's an interesting concept. Is that something that you as Bill Leverty solo or as Firehouse would ever consider is taking a genre of music, whether it's metal and softening them up or taking country songs and, and, and you know, melodic rock guising them? It, it, what do you think of that concept of taking a specific genre like country and then bringing it into what you do in your sort of sphere and, and owning them? Well, I really love that idea. I love it so much that I did an album of, of almost just that. It's an album called Deep South, where I took songs from the Restoration Era, which are the you know, just after the Civil War, that I found. And I didn't know these songs, um, but a lot of them were country-western, a lot of them were spiritual, gospel kind of songs or whatever, and I recorded them and made them with, with my style, so to speak. And I did, you know... Um, a couple of real old standard, you know, country tunes, and they're made for rock and roll. They're made for putting heavy guitars and, and, um, for, you're just kind of dressing up a girl. The song is the girl and you can put whatever dress you want on her. Uh, you can take something where she was wearing a country dress and you can put her, dress her up in metal, in metal, uh, uh, clothing, yeah, metal and clothing. It's the same girl. And it's a beautiful girl. And so I really like the idea. I think it's um, a, a really cool, um, adventurous kind of way to go as an artist to, to do something like that. And it makes people smile. And if it makes you feel good as an artist, then that's really all that matters. So I think it's really, really cool that they did this. It's taken a bit of a chance, which, which we all love. And um, I hope they have a big success with it because I'm, I'm a Southern guy and I like hard rock. And I have a lot of kind of country, Southern bluesy kind of based notes in my playing and i i really gravitate towards that stuff real heavily yeah now the album comes out in july so once it's out i, I will send you like a spotify link it's like cause you're gonna have to check it out because it actually is i've had a chance to preview it. it it's it's really really interesting i love what they've done with it because metal is its own little thing but you can't lose the spirit of the country song just to make it metal and they haven't and, and that's interesting now of course deep south Th- deep south uh, came back, uh, came out in 2009, and uh, you had Bowl Weevil on there, which I always enjoyed, and of course Hit the Road Jack, which is a classic, if you if we can call it that, right? I mean, yeah, that was one of the exceptions of the uh, Restoration Era songs. I I figured this is songs that you know are a little bit that I didn't write, and uh, I always loved that song. It was an old song. It was a song my parents and I both really loved. We loved Ray Charles, but, but uh, you know, like Bowl Weevil, that's an old banjo song out of the uh, 20s, the 1920s. And um, I didn't know the song, but I went around looking around and I found that song and it just really hit me as, as a cool song about this little bull weevil that ruined everybody's crops. And, um, and they were singing about that stuff back then. And um, so I thought, well, I bet that would sound pretty cool with a, um, an electric guitar on it and, and, and some some bigger production. So it was, it was a lot of fun to do. I can imagine now. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to do a shameless plug here, but if we go over to Liberty.com, is deep South and some of the other ones still there, are they still available? Oh yeah, man. Yeah. You can get them on 
Spotify too and iTunes, but you know, if you if I would say if anybody wants to buy any one of my albums and they put in the notes to seller when they when they check out, hey, I heard this on Mitch LaFon's Rock Talk uh, with you. I, I'll sign it for you, man. I'll you know there I'll you sign go. it to you. You know, I I just love doing that for people who who you know support. So all right, so so we have a deal here. So you heard it, folks. If you go to Leverty.com and order a CD and said you heard about it here. You get it signed. There you go. That's that's a deal. That is a great deal. And, and I'll sign it to you. If you if your name's Bob, just say, hey, can you sign it to Bob? I'll I'll put it to Bob. Thanks, Bill Liberty. Can if I wanted to have it signed, dear a eBay uh, winner, would that be? <laughs> no problem. No problem. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Now and, and of course, I'll just finish with this with with Devil Drivers and Outlaws till the end. Uh, a lot of bands do covers albums and they do cover songs and sometimes they play it note for note like the original artist and you know that's great. But it's nice sometimes to make a song your own, and that's what I appreciate about this Outlaws Till the End, is that they made the songs their own. And I'll finish on this, Bill. If you were to do a covers album uh, with Firehouse or Alone, uh, other than Deep South, would you want to do these the note-for-note the note interpretation, or would you want to be sort of more liberal with it and, and just sort of explore the possibilities of the song? I like to explore the possibilities of the song while at the same time keeping the memorable parts of, of a solo right. the essence. in there. Yeah, the essence of the song to still be there. I, I did that with my Drive album. That's a conversation for another time where I took songs from my childhood and, and re-recorded them and uh, tried to keep them true to the original, but at the same time putting my own herbs and spices on them. You know? So that's, that's Drive. Those are songs from like the 70s. Uh, that I that I covered. That was a fun album, and quite an education for me too. To you know, take a Stevie Wonder song that I really loved as a kid, and and really break it down and listen to how how did he do all that stuff, and break down the production of that, or um, you know, a Creedence song. How did how did they really do that on that record? Because when you're a kid listening to it, you're listening to the whole thing, and it's all coming at you all at once. But when you listen to it nowadays, you can really break it down and hear which each each instrument's doing to make that overall end result sound yeah and and i will say this uh for me uh, the best cover song that you ever did was uh, you singing deuce on the uh, oh dude thanks Thank on, for... <laughs> yeah on the kiss tribute uh, a world with heroes that uh, you doing deuce and you know there's another song on there reason to live which is credited to honeymoon suite and of course we did have johnny and, uh, you know, um, the band on there, but uh, we also had you and Mike Foster uh, helping out on the song. And so fo folks definitely check those one out. Great stuff. Uh, well, thanks for letting us do that, Mitch. That was your your Little... creation, and, and uh, we were really, really honored to be on that. Yeah, but, but it's just funny because I, I, I remember when... Um, and don't, don't take this wrong, but you said, I want to sing on Deuce. And I was like, oh, okay. That I, I didn't think of you as singing on Deuce, and then I got it, and I went, "Oh shoot, he should be singing on like ten more of these," because that was just like, "Whoa!" <laughs> that was like, "Wow," you know. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was my favorite Kiss song growing up, and um, it wasn't on the list yet, and so I was like, "Mitch, please let me sing that one." And you're like, "Well, okay." Yeah. And I sent it to you. I worked real hard to make sure I didn't have any, um, you know, out of tune uh, guitars or or. Uh, vocals on that and and it's tough to to sing a gene simmons song i mean he's got a voice 
like none other. He's got so much guts and so much conviction when he sings, and so I, I did my best. But I'm yeah. glad you, I'm glad you dig it. Oh yeah, yeah, you, you nailed that. That was absolutely perfect. And uh, so let's get let's get over to our our next artist here. Here is from the band Devil Driver, talking about Outlaws till the end. The one, the only, Des. Fafara. We have on the phone with us Dez from Devil Driver. The new album is Outlaws Till the End, Volume 1. Dez, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me, man. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm real excited. So talk to me about this concept because you, you've taken these country songs and essentially, you know, what's the word we want to use here? But you, you sort of added a whole bunch of balls to them, right? That's, that's I guess, the best way to say <laughs> right? Uh, well said. Well said, man. Yeah. So, so talk to me about the concept and and how did you get get into choosing songs? Were, were the songs just songs that you happened to like? Were they songs that were suggested to you? Were they songs that lyrically said, "Yeah, that would be a great metal lyric"? Just talk to me about sort of the genesis of the project and how we got from there to here. Right. Okay. So, two questions. I mean, let's go into the first one first. How this thing even started? I've grown up around sorts of music. I'm a fan of all sorts of styles, everything from blues to black metal. I've always loved Outlaw Country, specifically for the lyrical content. I think it's the most poignant on the planet. The storytelling is just absolutely on point. And uh, we had an off day with Double Driver where we went into like the Mall of America or whatever. We did one of those photo shoots for everyone that shotgun dresses up like uh, cowboys. About two weeks into the tour, I had that thing in the back of my tour bus and I kept looking at it. And I knew it was going to be three years before the next Devil Driver record. And I'm a guy who doesn't like to make people wait. You're either going to get a record every two years or, or even sooner. Uh, when I was younger, you got a record every year from, from a band I love. And so knowing that it was going to be three years and three-year wait, we said, well, we need to give somebody, we need to give these listeners something great to listen to in the interim. What are we going to do? Well, I'd love to do a covers record. That's not something you have to go in and, and spend three years writing. Uh, so we can go ahead and, and bite this off. But metal bands have covered 80s tunes. They've covered other metal tunes. They've covered punk rock, you know, and it's like, let's do something that really hasn't been done. Let's lend guests to it, which has never been done, and let's try to do something fantastic. So uh, in the back of the tour bus is how we came up with the idea of the songs. I basically laid down the guys that we have to do. I was like, you got to do Willie. You got to do Cash got to do Waylon, uh, and, and kind of laid down the ground rules there. Then everybody put their list together. We narrowed it down from about 50 tunes. Um, and then guys came out of the woodwork with what they wanted. Mike Spritzer, my guitar player, was like, look, I want this song, Dad's Gonna Kill Me. Uh, it's an anti-war kind of song, and I listened to it, and then I, I looked at streaming, and I was like, okay, well, people have watched this like 40 million, or heard this 40 million times. So I'm like, I love the lyrical content. Let's do it. Uh, Neil, my guitar player, brought uh, A Thousand Miles From Nowhere. He's a big Dwight Yoakam fan, as well as I uh, am. And, and I, my out-of-the-box one was the Eagles. And I'm like, are they outlaw country? No. But if you look at most of their photos in the early days, they're dressing in cowboy western gear. they got bullet belts across their chest, etc. And we did uh, Outlaw Man by them. So, and then... The, <laughs> You know, that's, that's how this all kind of came into the workings. We knew we were going to have three years between the record. We knew we wanted to do something special. Uh, and then it started spiraling completely out of control when the guests uh, started popping up. So 
I guess you can ask me a question about that, or I can just go ahead and tell you how that started. You know, I don't know if you have a question about that or. Well, no. In fact, uh, well, I mean, yes, I do want to know about that. But but before we get there, then, so you know, you you know, you had to have a George Jones and a Johnny Cash and a Dwight Yoakam. But the specific songs that you chose from them, was it particularly just songs that you happen to just like, or you say, no, we need this metal lyric. We need to have that that thing that you know, Devil Driver can deliver and have some. Uh, what's the word for it? Uh, it? It'll fit into what Devil Driver does lyrically and what we, you know. Uh, you know right, I mean? absolutely. I know, yeah, I know exactly where you're going with this. I mean, for me, I've been sober almost two years. So these are songs I used to listen to at four in the morning in the back of the tour bus drinking with friends. So Ghost Riders in the Sky, for instance, uh, which isn't a Johnny song, but arguably enough, one of his biggest, uh, I've always heard that song heavy. Ghost Riders. I've always heard that. Uh, Whiskey River. I had an idea for Willie Nelson's Whiskey River and turned it into a real heavy, almost black metal track, um, which we did. So that's how we kind of narrowed it down. Okay, we're get, we got to do it by these guys, and then what are the songs? And it was real hard to pick a Johnny Cash song. Knowing that this was a volume one, I already know the Johnny song I'm going to do on volume two, and I know the, the one I want to do on volume one is Ghost Riders, so let's do it. You know, And that's how that came about. So, okay, so so that that sort of is uh, speaks to the follow up in terms of is this volume one? So there will be a volume two, but and volume two, of course, will will be Outlaw Country again, or is volume two going to be volume two of cover songs? I mean, do we stick no, to no, it? It's okay. going to most de- most yeah most definitely Outlaw Country, and I just don't know when that's going to happen. So if you have a question about when you think, I don't know. This thing was almost two years in the making. Once I got the music, this thing was two years in the making to get it done. I almost dug my grave several times. It was just the budget ran out halfway through. It was insanity to get done. Uh, But I did put volume one on this one, knowing that if I wanted to bite it off later, and I had a ton of guests, wanted to guest, and they were either in the studio themselves, they were on the road, they couldn't do it. So I've got a guest list right now of, you know, over 20 people that want to be on volume two. And a lot of them are massive names in the industry uh, in punk rock, outlaw country, and heavy metal. So knowing that, uh, we, we did put a volume one on it. We are definitely going to do a volume two, and it's going to be outlaw country tunes. I don't know when that's going to be done. Do you see yourself going the other way, where you take Devil Driver songs or other metal songs, whether it's Lamb of God or Metallica, and countrifying them and do a country album? Is that something that would interest you to go the other way? In this process, no, not for no, not 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 for me. I, I don't think you you do that. I don't think you take a brand like Devil Driver and have them do country songs. I just don't okay. think you you do that. You, okay, yeah, and, not something I not something I'd want to do. And uh, I, I I love the thought process of doing something insane like that, but I don't think it'd be good for the brand. It wouldn't. It, well, well, it wouldn't necessarily be good for the brand, but it certainly would be challenging creatively. I mean, to 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 sort of reimagine your songs or a Metallica song in in a in a more. I mean, you know, right? You know, nothing right, else. Yeah. No, nothing I, else I, in the matter is. You know. Um. So let's talk about these guests. Cause you've got an incredible uh, slew of guests here. I mean, you've got Randy on there. You've got Hank Three, John Carter Cash. Did you reach out to them or did they sort of hear about the project and say, hey, we want to be on this? Did you want to make it really just a Devil Drivers album? And then these guests came and you said, I, I can't refuse. I've got to have these guys. Talk to me about how they sort of all came to you and, and who do you sort of say, yeah, I need to have him. That's that's going to make sense to me. Right. Well, you know, luckily, the Oracle management uh, 
who handles Devil Driver is my company. So we had direct access. I didn't like have to go through a manager and through somebody else and everything. We had direct access. We were working on it ourselves. And it started out was like, I don't want to do this without Hank three. There's a picture of me and Hank uh, on my wall from Revolver when I did an interview with him. We've been friends for over 25 years. I didn't want to do it without Hank. I really didn't want to do it without Randy. He's uh, one of my closest friends. And I knew, okay, if I have those cats, I got one guy from Outlaw Country, one guy from Metal. Good. We're good to go. And then one night I just started firing off texts to everybody I knew. Dan Jig, Wednesday 13, he came back. I'm in. Uh, Mark Morton from Lamb of God, I'm in. Uh, I hit somebody up and said, look, I really want to get John Carter Cash on this. I've never met him. I want the Cash family on this. And I want to go to the Cash cabin. It's like a bucket list for me. Um, somebody we knew gave us a number. We contacted John Carter. And good thing we did. Uh, they are close family friends now. They are some of the coolest people I've ever met. We recorded at the Cash Cabin. We pulled up, and John Carter is sitting in front. For the first hour, he serves us food he made the night before for us, and he proceeds to tell me about his love for metal. I proceed to tell him about my love for Outlaw Country. He shows me photos of when Johnny, his father, took him to go see Ozzy. And here's Johnny in this all black, of course, and black boots like up past his knees, like sitting there with John Carter and Ozzy. And it was like a real meeting of the minds. And then his wife, Hannah Cash, has a classically trained voice from the time she was seven. She's one of the most incredible vocalists I've ever heard. And so she does all the highs and stuff over Ghost Riders. And just being able to record at the Cash Cabin with the Cash family solidified this thing to a point where you know, it's just, it's solid. Um, Johnny and John Carter put up a wooden mantle over the fireplace when they first built the cabin. And, uh, it's got a JC brand on it, like a cattle brand. And everybody that's come through the cash cabin, all mostly country has signed that mantle. I got to sign that mantle. I signed it in black Sharpie. I signed it right next to Chris Christopherson and Willie Nelson. Nice. There's, there's things, there's bucket list things happening as this is going through. Um, Hank three, uh, the minute I reached out to him, it's like, of course, man, whatever we need to do. And like, I mean, he was ready to do it. And I was like, look, we're going to do outlock. We're going to do uh, country heroes. It's your tune, but I don't want you to sing like how you do on your stuff. I know you have other voices in your head. You want people to hear. And man, he sent me like 20 discs of all these different takes from country heroes and I picked the one that I love the best, and it's almost like he almost sounds like he's Aussie on this stuff, man. Nice. It's unbelievable. Oh, yeah, and so as this came, it just started coming together, man. Uh, you know, another one out of the box that was like, like, let me share this with you. It's like the first, I had a very rough childhood growing up. So domestic abuse, et cetera, et cetera. I ran away from home at a very early age. I ran away from home with a fear shirt on my first time. So now I get leaving. I contact leaving. Leaving says he wants to be on this. He calls me. My wife puts it on video because it's the first time I'm talking to my hero. I mean, I've done songs with you name it, Ozzy, like a ton, everybody. Right? But working with Lee for me is like an unreal thing. He calls me. My wife is videotaping it. He starts singing Hank Sr. songs to me on the phone. Proceeds to tell me that he got into music, punk rock, everything, because his mother gave him a mandolin. And that he has a side project, country band called Range War. And I'm like, you're kidding me, right? I'm tripping out right now. This is my punk rock idol. I'm on the phone with him for like two hours the first time we talk. We become really great friends. He does the ride with me 
by Hank Sr. He also does the beginning of the band comes around with that kind of shaky tone in his voice. Um, he plays harp on the project. It's unbelievable. And these, these are kind of the moments in an artist's life when he has to say, this is truly what it's about. It's not just about putting out a new record, doing press, going on tours. It's really about doing something different, artistic, biting off something you know is going to be difficult to chew, and giving something special to people who are, who are into your art, who are, who are listeners of your art. And that's exactly what this thing is. And it's, uh, like I said, it's a long time in the making. And when we finally finished, like I hadn't, I didn't know how I was going to celebrate cause I'm sober. And I just kind of, I, ju- I actually, when we were done, I jumped in my pool with my clothes on completely as cold as like 52 degrees. And I was like, whatever, that's how I end in this thing. Like, cause it, I have a home studio. I'm like, it's done. I couldn't believe it was in the can, you know? So that's the story. That's a great story. Now, now you've mentioned a couple of times that you've been sober for, for two years. Can, let me just ask you, if I can, quickly about that. Was that just a moment of, I'm getting too old for this party thing and it's, it's just time to move on? Or was there a bottom of the barrel kind of moment or was just an epiphany like, hey, you know what? I've done that. Let's try it. Like, like, talk to me about that moment where you sort no, of... No, I mean, you know, I've been, I've, been so, I've been sober about almost almost two years, not quite two right. years at all. And, and congratulations, think, by the way. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, no, no bottom of the barrel moments. I mean, there was moments in my in my early days when you know I was the guy on a half a bottle of whiskey, you know, and and a tab of acid riding on top of the tour bus, you know, in cold chamber. I mean, that was just insane. You know, I was into the insanity of it. Um, but I had never had any bottom of the barrel moments. There was never any like, God, I keep waking up hungover, or, or what did I say last night? Or any of that going down. It was just a situation where I think after the age of like thirty. Drinks right. look bad on a dude. They just look bad on yeah. a guy. And I run several businesses. I run the Oracle Management, which has like massive clients like Jose Mangan from Sirius Radio and Boss Robinson, and like I mean, massive clients. And I run Sun Cult, which is a, a surf skate uh, kind of lifestyle brand with Randy from Lamagod and my wife Anastasia and my kids. And I, I I run two other bands. I've got other companies. Like I got to be on it. I'm up at 5 a.m. I'm to bed at midnight. I've got ADHD. I sleep five hours a night. I can't sleep anymore. So no real bottom of the barrel moment. It was kind of a turning point where I said, you know, why am I, and why am I having a cocktail before the show? Why am I having right. a cocktail after the show? Like, what is this? And what it became is just a thing. Like, you know, two hours before the show, you start getting ready. You go in the back lounge. You have a cocktail with your bros. You listen to some music. You go do the show. Afterwards, maybe you have a cocktail or two, and you go to bed. And I was like, I'm just going to put this down. Um, and it came in a moment when I was very inspired by my wife, who is heavily influenced by meditation, who is heavily influenced by just living well, living healthy, being happy, right? And she says to me, like, you know, now this is the point in your life. I mean, I've, I've, I've dropped like 30 pounds. I've got a fucking six pack the first time in, from my twenties. I mean, I was out skateboarding last night till, you know, or night before with my kids till 1030 at night, I got three sons and it was like, yeah, no, I'd, I'd like to live long. I'd like to live healthy. I'd like to have my shit together. And I don't want to be the guy because I'm a manager. I've got to go to shows. I don't want to be the guy like drinking. Uh, it just doesn't look good on you. And it's like, oh, your manager's drinking, your manager's drunk. It's like, if your manager's at your show and he's drunk, come over to the Oracle. I'll make your life a lot better as, a, as yeah. an artist, you know? So, so that's, that's where I was at with it. And plus there's a lot of people that are over the years that are either looking to me for guidance or looking to, looking to artists that they follow, you know? And they follow their lifestyles. 
and they follow their choices, their lifestyle choices. And I started a new Instagram uh, called uh, you know Positivity with Dez, and it's like it's taken off. It, you know, in in a very short time, five thousand people have subscribed. I'm giving daily daily positivity tips. I'm working with a doctor that's also on there, uh, Doctor Sims, and he's giving advice. And I'm like, yeah, well, you can't do this and then be out drinking at 2.30 in the morning and, and consider yourself, you know, somebody who's a life coach. <laughs> so, there you go. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And, and you know, you're just a little bit older than I am. I'm going to hit 50 this year. And it's just like, yeah, you know, it's fun at 25, but at 50, you're right. It just it just doesn't look good on you anymore. It looks almost almost no, immature, no, you know? No, when me, you, no, when you and I were younger, too, 50 yeah. was like, hey, be quiet. Grandpa's in the chair. He's asleep. He's retired. It's like, no, I just bombed a hill two nights ago with my 20-year-old sons. You know, I do shit 18-year-olds won't do, right. right? On stage, if you're 20, you're going on before me or after me, you're done. I'm taking you to the bank, to the cleaners. And that's how it has to be, right? That's the difference now in the times we live in. 50, you know, I say, oh, 50 is the new 30. It's like, well, yeah, if you look it and you feel it and you act it, it is. And that's where I'm at. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm daily, I'm working out, I'm surfing, I'm with my family, I'm living a happy, healthy life. I'm trying to bring people up around me. Um, I've got rid of any negative influences that were in my life. And that's a crazy thing, too. When you stop partying and you look around at everyone around you, you're like, you're a mess. You're a mess. You've been a mess forever. I have no idea what you're saying to me right now. You're so drunk, you're slurring. And you start going, wait a minute, what the hell is going on? I want these people out of my life if they can't get their shit together. And, and that happens. And your life gets so much better and in a more positive place once you put yourself in a healthy place. Um, and that's, that's, frankly, that's what I did. I'm vegan. I'm sober. I meditate. I do yoga. I do martial arts. I run businesses. You can't be fucked up doing those things. Oops, excuse my language. You can't no, be messed no, up doing those. No, no, the language is fine. Um, in fact, let, let me let me take you up just quickly on the vegan thing because I, I just interviewed Moby, and of course, Moby is a very um, well, I don't want to say militant because that sounds negative, but he's very you know very much into the vegan life. Talk to me about that change because uh, how did that? How did you get to be vegan, and how does that sort of affect what you do on the road, and how does that make you feel? I mean, what what's is it just a health thing? Is it is it a morality thing about animal cruelty? What, what's what's sort of the, the it, it, it's it, it's all of it. Okay, I did it for the animals. I did okay. it for the animals. That's the first thing. I've got four rescue cats. I've got two two rescue dogs, a Doberman and a Great Dane. I did it for the animals. When we grew up, we didn't have social media. You couldn't see how things were getting slaughtered. You couldn't see how chickens were being kept. You couldn't see how pigs were being kept. You couldn't see how cows were being led crying as they're being slaughtered, you couldn't see these people, how they beat these animals, how they chain them, how they torture them, how they keep them out of the sunlight for their whole life. You, could, you, you couldn't see these things. So now, if you can watch that video of a cow being led right. to slaughter, they're as smart as a, a dog. They come to their names. They feel love and joy. They jump around. They rub their heads on you. They want to play ball. Like they're, they're seriously like big dogs. And you can watch how that thing is being being led to slaughter, crying as it's going. They barely slash its neck as they start to peel its skin off while it's still alive. And you're going to go eat that? And what I'm, kind of human are you? No, listen, you know, I agree. And for me, yeah, there's a change coming, and it's happening. And the person who's like, whatever, I'll take my Coors beer and my burger any day. 
those people are dying off, dude. No yeah. one wants to. No, no one wants to eat these byproducts of factory farming when you don't need it. I eat so much cool. I mean, this morning I had a scramble made of sausage that wasn't sausage, tofu, egg whites that weren't eggs. Well, that's a disgusting thing right there. Eggs, disgusting. And that was so fantastic. And like we had tacos the other night with my kids. I mean, you can eat anything you can eat. You can eat it vegan, period. And the factory farming needs to stop. And, and pretty soon humanity is going to really, I mean, we're already, it's starting to wake up now. It started with the younger generation, but it's waking up now. Guys like me even are waking up now. I mean, I lost 34 pounds. Here's the deal. I went into a doctor. I'm like, I'm having this checkup. This is what you're supposed to do when you hit fucking 50. 50. Right. And he's like, dude, your, 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 your blood pressure, your this, your that, like you're, it's what's going on with you. It's out of control. Came back to him two months later. Vegan and so- no, three months later, vegan, sober. I had dropped 31 pounds. He's like, your blood pressure is perfect. Your fucking heart is perfect. Your blood count is perfect. What did you do? I'm sitting across from this doctor who's definitely 45 pounds overweight, smells like a cheeseburger, and smells like he just had a fucking cigarette on his break. And I said to him straight out, you're a doctor. Stop eating meat. Stop drinking booze. Work out. Eat right. And he's like, dude, I'm going to tell all my clients what you just did in three months. I said, exactly. So I think that's just it's part of the course. When you start to wake up, you can't deny those things, right? Like you have to listen to your gut. And yeah. I think what happened, I just sat and I watched a bunch of slaughter videos. And I was yeah. like, this is insanity. And I'm watching people like hit animals and, and prod them with electric shock to get that. Like, here's what I want to do. Like, do, like I want to see... I want to see a documentary on those factory workers who do that because they're insane. They're inflicting torture daily. They're hearing screams of animals fucking daily and they're going back to work. You know why? Because they get off on it. They punch, they kick those animals. It's ridiculous. And I've had farmers say to me, Hey, I raise livestock. That's not how I do it. And I go, dude, it don't matter. You take that animal and you have to go kill that animal. And it takes 181 showers Okay, to get one, uh, one pound of meat. It's, it's, it's taking our water. It's taking uh, the environment away from. It's just all of it needs to change. And so, look, you can't be part of a change unless you do it yourself. You do it within yourself. You have to show everybody you want to be part of the change. That's where yeah. I'm at. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting that you that you mentioned that because when I was discussing this with Moby, we were talking about how the change is coming because you go back 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we didn't even know how you pronounced the word. Was it vegan or vegan? Or, and, and if you said you were vegan, people thought, is that a mental illness? And now it's like, no, it's right. not a mental. And, and, and no, how about this? Right. When you're cutting your steak. What's, what, what's happening is when you're going, I want to go out for a big filet. You're the one with the mental illness. You're the one supporting torture. You're the one supporting killing. These animals love. They really do. On Instagram, I follow these two ducks, Otter and Otter and Ducky Duckums. That's right? funny. They're amazing. I'm telling you, bro. They they come out to their name. They love their owners. They give hugs. They it's fucking unbelievable. And I refuse to think, and I was raised to think that oh, they're animals. They're there to eat. That's that's what they're there for. No, they're not, man. They're not. They're there for you to be kind to. They're there to enrich our lives. Yeah, I agree. I mean, for torture. 
I've got a rescue dog staring at me going, can we go for a walk now? Let's, let, you know, and we walk, <laughs> I live out by, by farms and we're going to walk by cows in a few minutes and you know, they're all going to sort of smell each other and stuff. And, and it's, it's just very, it just, it's become sort of surreal that these, uh, the, us two guys, two metal guys are talking about this, but on, on Instagram, I follow quokas, which are these cute little animals in Australians. <laughs> okay, cool. Aren't we, aren't we entertaining? Um, but the, the just to get well, back you know, to I started I started following the du- the two ducks. I'll tell you why. It's because my stepfather, yeah. Yeah. who I don't have a good relationship and never have, ever and never will, is a duck hunter. And even if they're like half alive, he's already peeling the feathers off and whatever. And I just, I can't take it. And so I started following those two ducks and really watching their personalities shows me that every single living animal has the right to life and has the right to experience joy in this life and humanity is really the scourge of this planet we ruin this planet we enslave the animals we ruin the 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 biosphere like when the flood comes i'll be the first to stand up put my hands straight up dude because it's just uh atrocious so we either need to wake up real quick as a society or we're done and i'm talking not me not you i got three young sons and what's going to happen to their kids on this planet? I mean, and, and with social media, it's insane. Now you see guys swimming through in London, swimming through the sea of nothing but plastic. You see Trash Island out in the middle of the ocean, just like nothing but, but not a fish for fucking 50 miles, dude. Oh, yeah. Like, what's happening? What's happening? Okay, what's happening is the old, corporate, corrupt, money-grabbing, people who rule this world are dying off and the young and the people who are for this biosphere, both ecologically and with the uh, animals are starting to come into power, into play. I mean, it's going to be a great world. I think if that all happens and, and, and those people come into power and those people who have morals and start thinking about the biosphere, start thinking about the ecology of the planet, start thinking about animals, you know? Yeah, yeah. And change t- takes a generation. And uh, just, just before we finish here, and I, and I don't want to get away from, from, from that, cause that's a, that's a great topic. And I'm glad we went there, but uh, devil driver sure, is, bro. devil driver is of course working or going to soon be working on uh, not one, but two new albums. Uh, I just want to get a quick comment on that and then what it's like working with, you know, Neil and Austin, because, you know, you bring in new musicians. Do you stick to what Devil Driver does? Are they fresh blood that in, that that sort of injects a fresh blood into what Devil Driver does, maybe changes the sound or it enhances the sound? Just talk to me about, you know, these two albums that are coming up and having these two new members and how they sort of, and by new, I mean, they're three, it's been, it's been three years, but you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But just talk to me about that and having them, you know, write with you and play with you and, and these, these right. albums that are coming out in 2019 and 2020. Cool. Well, Austin is a beast and he's probably one of the nicest guys I've ever worked with. He just is an absolute pleasure to tour with. Uh, and he knew what Devil Driver was all about and he knew our sound. So I didn't have to critically uh, tell him how to be Devil Driver. He knows we like to groove and when we want to get down on it, he's got double bass, you know, to do it. Um, and Neil, he comes from a different background. You know, he's Texas guy. He's been playing guitar since he was like seven. Uh, he's written, you know, albums for, for David Cook. I mean, he's like got platinum records. He's a real writer. 
And it's something that I needed in the band. I replaced him with a guy who literally didn't, didn't write more than one or two songs in 12 years, Jeff Kendrick. So having him was a huge plus. Now, do they, do they, uh, do they inject new blood? Absolutely. Do you try to contain them? You try to contain them and say, Hey, no, 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 that's not devil driver. No, you don't. You say, what is devil driver? It's a constantly evolving thing. Uh, not many members changed over that 12 years until, you know, until it came down and, and our records are always, you you can tell that they're devil driver, but they have a, a different sound to them completely. Every single one is different. Right. And so we, we, you, you don't, uh, you don't try to control those guys. You let them do what they do. And if they come out with something fantastic, you use it. And that's really what's happening. And then as far as the double record goes, we're going to talk too much about this right now, but the bottom line is, I don't know where it got to the point where bands and metal feel like releasing a record every three to four years, two records every 10 years is, is par for the course. When I was younger, I got a new record every year from the band that I loved and I couldn't even imagine waiting two years or why they would make me wait two years. So now it's at this point, people wait three, four years between records. They're talking about, Oh, we don't want to oversaturate the market and this and that. It's like, no, I'm doing the total opposite. I knew it would be three years in between records now. That's why Outlaws Till the End is coming out July 6th, and it's going to throttle whatever's happening out there now. Then I'm like, what are we going to do? We're going to wait another couple of years? No, we're going to go in. We're going to write a double staggered release. We're going to release another record in 2020, another record in 2021. And we're just going to start releasing product, man, to people. You know, I, I think it helps that I've got three younger sons, right, all in their 20s. And you listen right. to these guys, they get new music from their family. I mean, if they're listening to Migas or whoever they're listening to, right, they're getting, like, new music uh, every four or five months, man, from these artists. And that's where metal and rock is falling short. So when Gene Simmons is like, hey, rock and metal is dead, I think what he's actually saying is, you better fucking kick it up. The problem is people have been waiting three, four years between records. So let me give you an example. And it's because I got kids. I, uh, a guy, a kid loves your band. He goes in, he's a freshman in high school. Right. He's wearing your shirt every day. He's wearing your shirt, right? Now he doesn't get another record from you until he's graduating high school. His whole yeah. life has been lived and his whole life has been lived in that four years on your one record. And you're going to deny him music from your favorite, from his favorite band, because what you're lazy or, or it actually takes you three to four years. If it takes you three to four years to make a record, you're not a very good musician. <laughs> like, well, so, and you know, I agree with that. And, and listen, I, I grew up like you in the seventies and eighties and there was two kiss albums a year. There was one Aerosmith album a year and you had a chance to become a fan and they became part of the soundtrack of your life. And you're right now, when you look at Metallica and it's eight years apart, well, in eight years, I'm not the same person. You know, I've, my kid is, has gone from two to 10. My, my job has gone from this to that. I mean, yeah, how can how can you be part of my it's life? Terrible. I don't know. I don't know where it started. And then you got the process too. And I feel sorry for these cats. And you've seen it. You know, where they wait three to four years, they release a record. It's completely panned by the press, completely panned by their fans. Now, what are they going to do? Now, if they go in and they release another record in a year, everyone's going to know that that record failed, so they had to rush in and get something. So they're screwed. And now they they got to sit out for another two three years on a failure of a record. And it's just it's not right. Metallica. Should set, should set the standard for all of us and start releasing a record every 18, every 18 months, period. Yeah, I, period. I agree. I agree. 
and, 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 you know, they got the money to do it too. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, we all have to like, okay, how are we going to do this? Like, you know, cause maybe there's one guy that works or whatever, you know, you got to figure it out. But you know, when you've got all the money in the world, like, why aren't you just fucking sitting around writing music? Oh, because now you got the money. Music is on the backside. Well, it's cool to put your family in front of whatever, but like, what about all your other stuff that you're doing? Like, get back to music, you know? I'm a huge Metallica fan. I grew up on all those early records. I just, yesterday, going through my closet, found a tape cassette of Ride the Lightning. Nice. And, you know, lucky enough, my 65 my T-Bird, somebody put a tape player in there. We jamming that thing fucking yesterday, you know? Um, but I just think people need to step it up, step up the game. And I know I've been talking to a lot of artists uh, that I tour with my contemporaries and everybody is feeling the same way. Right. But here's the problem too. The labels are all saying, no, 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 no. You got to wait two to three years. You'll saturate the market. You know, you'll this and that. It's like, that's the point. Well, yeah, the it point is. is to saturate. That's the point. You have a music lover, music listener. They want to listen to your tunes. You're making them wait three to four years. We're not doing that anymore. If I ever have to wait, you know, two, two and a half, it's simply because I took, t- I'm like, nope, I'm taking complete time off with my family. And then that, you know, that's not happening at this point right now. I'm, I'm rolling, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and, and you're right, you know, and, and it's funny that the business model changed because in the seventies, the Alice Coopers and the Aerosmiths and all those bands, the whole point was to saturate the market so that people never forgot who the hell you were. And now it's like, let them forget who you were so you can come back in three years and, and it's just like, no, <laughs> it's, it's, no, it's not. And, you know, and then, and then you have all this physical downloading and you have all of this piracy of material, which is critical to the, uh, the lives of underground artists, punk rock, blues, metal, you know, underground artists like myself. And it's being fucking demonetized. And so the labels are going, well, wait a minute, you know, we've got to wait, we've got to wait till we recoup our money in order to give you more money to make another record. And it becomes this, this whole thing. Right. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Everybody needs to wake up, shake up and let's, let's really start moving product from metal and from rock. I mean, I think that's, what's going to help the scene, right? Look at EDM. Like I'm great friends with one of the biggest guys out there, excision. Every single thing he does sells out. His shows are amazing. If you've ever been to an EDM show, you want to go see Excision. Like his light walls and everything, it's incredible, right? But like those cats spit out stuff every couple months. That's why they're engaging the new generation. That's why EDM fests have 100,000 kids and you've got something like, you know, you've got the fests that are going on, the metal fests that are going on, completely dying, you know? And another thing that's going on as well, like we could just talk about, it's like 85% of the bands you think are metal bands now are actually active rock bands in disguise with full-on clean vocals, clean choruses, but they're wearing a Metallica shirt and they're pretending that they're metal bands. And like people are eating that up. Oh, I love this band. They're my favorite metal band. I'm like, dude, that's not a metal band. And then you've got the other metal bands that are coming out going, Oh, we're, we're the new thing. Like we're the hottest thing happening. We're the, we're the heaviest thing happening. We're the hottest thing happening. We're coming for you. Right. And I'm like, well, dude, I just heard a song on the radio that sounded like the smashing pumpkins. So who are you? Are you that band or are you the band that's coming for everybody? And you're just so hard and heavy. And that's the, that's the label thing too. Pushing that going, Hey man, if you don't have something on active rock, if you don't have something on octane. It's not going to drive the career. So you're having this schism 
You know, and so I see a dude standing there on the front cover of a magazine going, I'm in the new thing. I'm coming for you. And I'm like, well, who are you? I don't even know who you are. I tried to listen. and I can't figure you out. Are you Smashing Pumpkins or are you the newest hardcore band? I can't figure it out. So yeah. that's another thing that's happening. And it's a schism because let me tell you, and it's like, if we don't get to active rock, if we don't get to octane, we're going to die in the vine. We're just going to be another metal band. It's like, that's why you got into metal, dude. That's why I left Coal Chamber at the height of my popularity with my own tour bus, making X amount of dollars a night. A, because they were messed up on drugs. And B, I wanted to go heavier. I wanted to go more underground. I wanted to feel what I was feeling with my gut, right? And I went heavier. So... I don't know. You got all this going on. We really have to see how this plays out in the next year or two. And what I think is going to happen is there's going to be some kind of commission or something drawn up to start taking a look at streams and start taking a look at what's really going on. Because personally, I think Spotify plays my music once. That's a play like a radio play. And we should be paid. And we're not. YouTube, I've got how many? 30 million views or whatever. Have I seen a dime from that? No. So these things have to be, the algorithms have to be monetized and have to be monetized in a way that the artists reap the benefits, not just the labels. And a lot of the labels are reaping the benefits on these algorithms, monetizing them. And the artists are so significantly naive that they don't even know or understand that the label just made $150,000 off your streams and you're not even seeing it. And they're not even accounting to you. So... There's a lot going on in the industry right now. And personally, with the Oracle management, working alongside my wife with all of my clients and the assistants that we have and the other manager that's coming on, I'm really seeing behind the curtain even more than I have in the last 25 years. And the emperor has no clothes. You've got managers out there working with people, not doing anything, just not moving the needle, just taking 15%. You've got labels not willing to fucking put out music fast enough. You've got artists, lazy, not willing to fucking get in the studio, put out a record every two years. It's becoming to the point where now I'm just going to go up totally against the grain. I'm putting out an outlaw country cover record. I'm putting out a record every, you know, 12 to 12 to 18 months. And I'm going to start digging in and doing my fair share to support what I think support heavy metal and support what I think is the scene, my scene, you know? Yeah, I agree. And, and I think you could even take it a step further and just, make your own videos and put them on your own YouTube channel and monetize them to yourself and not go through any kind of, of, of like, you, you know, can, you can't because you, you can't because you're in contracts and you're, right. you know, you're contracted and we gave you the money to make that video. And now this and that, okay, well show me, show me the money that's coming into those streams. Oh, okay. We'll count it. You know, once every 12 months. I mean, dude, it's, it's becoming, luckily I have a situation with a label that I work with napalm records. They're very transparent. They're a great label. They do great things for their artists. They get great deals. They're really behind music and heavy metal in general. So uh, I'm lucky in that, in that standpoint. I've got a great partner. But, you know, we have to see where all these things are going to go. And, and I'm, you know, by no means at the tail end of my career right now. But I am kicking it up right now to make sure that when I leave the planet, I leave a fucking scar and I leave a mark. I think that's what's important as, uh, to be an artist. You've got to leave a mark. I agree. I agree. Uh, Des, great pleasure. We uh, we said 20. We're at 40, which is fantastic. And uh, Outlaws, uh, till the end, coming out, of course, later this year. I just, I love the concept. I just love the idea that, that, that that's behind this. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. And, uh, you know, I look forward to Thank it. Thank you so much, man. 
Yeah, and I look forward to seeing another Devil Driver show. We we actually have met uh, at Heavy Montreal and stuff like that, and I'm hoping you'll you'll come back uh, this part of the world soon. And uh, you know, thank you so much. Oh, we'd love to, man. Thank you very much for having me. And really interesting conversation. I love when it's engaging. I do so much press. And when it's engaging and when you got some, some good questions, it's always fantastic. This record drops July 6th. People are going to love it. Uh, if you haven't heard it yet, I'll try to get the label to send the whole thing over to you. But please like do. people hear Whiskey River, okay, fantastic, man. Well, you have a great weekend. And, and thank you very much for the engaging conversation. And uh, everybody out there, take care of yourself and, and live up to your potential in life. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. Cheers. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Cheers. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.